Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. And welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. I'm co-host of the channel, along with Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Brian Epstein. Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Tufts University. His new book, The Ant Trap, Rebuilding the Foundations of the Social Sciences, is just out from Oxford University Press. The social sciences are about social entities, things like corporations and traffic jams, mobs and money, parents and war criminals. What is a social entity and what makes something a social entity? Traditional views hold that these things can be fully explained by facts about people, either their bodies, their attitudes, or some combination of these. Epstein argues that such a view of social facts is untenably anthropocentric. Social facts supervene on much more than just people. His model distinguishes between two kinds of questions that a theory of social ontology must answer. When are the social categories realized, or what grounds a social fact such as when is someone a war criminal, and what explains how these categories get established or what anchors the category. Epstein also uses his model to provide a fresh analysis of group action and group intention. On his view, groups are constituted by individuals but are grounded in facts about more than just people. Group action is not exhausted by the actions of members, and group intention depends on more than member attitudes. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Brian Epstein. Are you there? Hi. Yes, I am. Hi. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Looking forward to talking with you. Uh, great. Well, your your book, The Ant Trap, Rebuilding the Foundations of the Social Sciences, is it's full of lots of very interesting insights and provocative comments, not the least of which is the claim that, the at least as the Social sciences have been articulated, or the foundations have been articulated uh, in prior theories. They're a bit too anthropocentric, which is kind of interesting. Um, So before we get into the actual uh, material of the book, maybe you can tell us how you got to philosophy in general. Oh, sure. Um, so uh, I uh, studied philosophy as an undergraduate, but I think like a lot of people, I didn't start out in philosophy. I kind of discovered it when I was there. Um, I started out in science and in physics and math mostly. 
Um, but pretty quickly, I found, uh, like a lot of people do, that that's not where they're kind of asking the most fundamental questions, which is what I was really interested in. Um, and so I very quickly gravitated to philosophy. Um, and, uh, and it turned out that most of what I was doing uh, in the department at the time, I was at Princeton as an undergrad, and uh, pretty much everybody there was doing philosophy of language. Uh, it sort of seemed like that was the pinnacle of philosophy. So I was working with people like Scott Soames and David Lewis, of course, without knowing who those people were, um, but found myself very quickly, you know, really immersed in focusing on philosophy of language and kind of thought of myself as, you know, intending to be a philosopher of language. Right. So, I mean, not actually unlike my own uh, background. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I think it was just a generational thing. Everybody grew up doing philosophy of language and it's philosophy has has become a bit more you know, comprehensive in that way that metaphysics in particular has has become more of a thing. Right. I mean, I think that, you know, even into grad school, I was still doing, I thought of myself as a philosopher of language and was mostly working in philosophy of language to start with. And in fact, it was kind of a funny thing that happened in my dissertation defense. So um, this may be jumping forward a little bit, but um, I ended up writing my dissertation on uh, reference fixing, which is a topic in language, you know, how we assign words to things in the world. Um, and um, this is one of the areas where I started to think about the social world, because when I was working on reference, it, you know, there was there's this huge literature on how we fix reference to proper, uh, the reference of proper names, that is, how we, uh, how we introduce words that refer to particular objects in the world. And there's a huge literature on how we we introduce words for natural kinds, uh, that is, kinds like gold and water. Um, but there was absolutely no literature at the time on social kinds. It wasn't clear at all how these words were supposed to work. And I think that there were some kind of very naive theories out there, um, but it became clear to me that this was a huge gap in the literature. So I started working on reference fixing to social kinds. That was the topic of the dissertation. And then in the defense, I had this this kind of argument with one of the members of the committee because, you know, as I was writing the dissertation, it became clearer and clearer that it wasn't really about language at all. It was really about the metaphysics of the social world. Mm -hmm. And the reference fixing part was kind of minor. What really mattered is what are these things that we're fixing reference to in the social world? So I had this debate in the, uh, in the defense and this, one of my committee members was like, you know, this is a, a dissertation on reference. And I was like, actually, it's a dissertation on metaphysics. And there was this kind of absurd back and forth that went on for a while. Um, but I found myself migrating into metaphysics in order to solve these problems. That's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a familiar story, actually. Um, so some of the metaphysics, the, so this book is, is metaphysics, it's social ontology, um, yeah. And some of the yeah, that's actually a field that has that that I mean it's it's very interesting because I mean I was working on this you know maybe a dozen years ago but the field of social ontology in a lot of ways is a very recent field um, I don't think that anybody even talked about social ontology until until a few years ago and now you know it seems like it's really exploding everybody's starting to realize that not only do we need to use the tools of metaphysics to start clearing up some of the problems in social ontology and understanding the metaphysics of the social world. But actually, interestingly, it kind of goes in the other direction as well. People are starting to see that our our tools of metaphysics actually have to be modified and refined by 
uh, kind of improving our understanding of the social world. So there's kind of that bi-directional thing going on between the basic tools of metaphysics and thinking about the social. Great. Um, yeah, well, you certainly do avail yourself of some of the more recent uh, innovations. I don't know, actually don't know if they should be called innovations, and that's a question. I think um, that's in- fair, yeah. Um, but, okay, just to kind of ground people a bit, uh, you know, when we're talking about the social and social entities and things like that, we're thinking about, you know, some of the examples you give are like a mob is a, is a standard example, uh, uh, commuters or, or traffic uh, that's right. That's the, right. I mean, the Jewish people, right? And then exactly. also things like uh, I think one of your nice examples is, you know, a a, a child setting up uh, stuffed animals at a tea party, right? Um, and then uh, the whole idea of uh, a handicapped parking space and uh, the idea of of kosher meat or 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 trafe meat as as in your example right because it's it's pigs right pigs right um, so um yeah i don't actually use the technical term trafe no, uh, but let's um but, uh, so let me just just to you know before we get into how you how you establish the metaphysical basis of all these different sorts of social entities uh-huh. um like I said, you, you start with the provocative m- remark that uh, the foundations of the social sciences have been too centered on people, right? They're too yep. anthropocentric. And um, that, that, you know, to the, you know, untutored ear, perhaps, that sounds a bit like saying that sociology is too centered on people. Well, in it's, some it's, ways it is. In uh-huh. some ways it is. I mean, I know that sounds kind of paradoxical uh-huh. to say, well, I mean, look, we're talking about the sciences of the social, and the social is people. And so how can it be that these sciences are too people-centric? Again, that does, I mean, it's almost like saying, oh, well, you know, computer science is too computer-centric. Right. Right? That sounds like a weird thing to say. But when we actually start looking at the nature of the social world, it turns out that the building blocks of it and we're going to talk more, um, hopefully, in the next hour about, you know, all the different kinds of building blocks of the social, because there are different ways we can think about building. But all the different kinds of, uh, of building blocks involve much more than just people. You know, if you just walk around the world, some of these examples that you gave already, um, you know, if you look at uh, a handicapped parking space, you know, that's the, some of the building blocks of that are asphalt and paint. It's not people. If you look at a university or if you look around your home, there, there are built environments with incredibly complex sorts of things in them or, you know, banks and corporations. The building blocks of these things, sure, they involve people, but people are just a kind of small part of the entities that kind of fill up the social world, the furniture of the social world. And so, you know, the problem with a lot of these sciences is that they make an assumption that if you want to model these things, what you need to do is model individual people and interactions between them. And this is something you find really everywhere in the social sciences. And that is indeed too anthropocentric. So even sociology and economics these things are really not sciences of people. Hmm. They're sciences of social objects, and social objects have very complex building blocks. Cool. Well, um, the the theory that you, in essence, just 
put forward is a very individualistic theory, and you you call that um, uh, the consensus view. There's there's two different views that you present early in the book. One is what you call the consensus view, which is a highly uh, individualistic, a very uh, where which is basically the the very anthropocentric uh, model where all the social facts reduced to facts about individual people. Mm-hmm. Um, and this avoids any sort of mysticism about the will of the people or the spirit of the nation or any of that sort. Um, and then in contrast to that, um, there is a more conventionalist view, I guess, what you call the standard model of social ontology, uh, where the social facts are determined by certain conventions or rules. Um, yeah. And so, so, so maybe me, you could say a bit about each of those, because your view will kind of take a little bit from each or at least elaborate in a way that takes important insights from each, but doesn't fall into their problems. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so in some ways, I wouldn't say that one of them is more individualistic than another. Uh-huh. I think that what we're really talking about is two very different kinds of individualistic theories. I think that basically when you look at theories that are out there about how the social world is built, it, seems, it may, may seem surprising, but actually there are two radically different kinds of theories. Both of them are individualistic. And people don't really seem to notice that they're competitors, that there are two, two different theories about kind of what the prototypical social objects are and how those prototypical social objects are built. And so in order to explain them, uh, one way of doing it is to kind of use a, a simplification. It's to, to look at, at kind of the, uh, a caricature of the first kind of model and a caricature of the second kind of model. And then we can complicate those. But I want to start just by, by kind of characterizing the caricatures of the two models. Okay, mm-hmm. so the first model, which um, I, I called the consensus view, um, this is a view that uh, I think is, uh, is very widely held, particularly by people who actually do social science, who are modeling in things like game theory and economics and that sort of thing. And that is to use as kind of a paradigm of a social object, a crowd. Um, That is, you know, a set of people, maybe they're like running down the street and rioting or something like that. So picture a crowd of people, okay? And then you want to say, well, what is this social entity, these people? And how do we characterize the properties of this crowd running down the street? Now, uh, according to this theory, what you want to do in order to understand the properties of the crowd is to see that the crowd is built entirely out of individual people, right? So if we take a crowd as a prototypical entity, then it seems pretty obvious that, you know, there isn't some sort of a spirit of the crowd or an autonomous entity that's the crowd apart from the individual people. Okay, so you can, it doesn't seem like it's going to be very hard to come up with an individualistic theory of how the crowd is built. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yep. So that's kind of the, the standard prototype of one kind of approach to uh, kind of how the social world is built. Um, now, uh, I think that, that also um, 
there's a, a kind of branch of, of scientists who are trying to make sense of the social world that also use that kind of prototype. The, the idea of the ant trap, the title of the book, it's, it's kind of a, an obscure title in some ways. Why would I call a book about social science the ant trap, right? Yeah. But the, the idea uh, is, you know, I was reading these, uh, these books by uh, the sociobiologist um, uh, e. O. Wilson. He's, mm-hmm. So he's this Harvard entomologist, basically, and he's done all this wonderful work on studying ants and ant societies and ant colonies. So you know, he talks about how uh, how complicated ant societies are and how ants communicate with other ants and how you get these incredibly sophisticated emergent characteristics of a colony, even though ants themselves are all very simple. Somehow the colony does very complicated and organized things. Right, mm-hmm. And this is all very impressive that ant colonies are able to do this. And then he takes the next step, which is the problem. The next step is then to apply it to human societies. And he says, actually, the way that human societies work is they're just like ant colonies. They basically are complex interactions of individuals all kind of pursuing their own individual agendas and not knowing what the group is going to do. But a human society is what he calls a superorganism, just as an ant colony is a superorganism. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's kind of the standard model of how you might think about the building blocks of society. You think about human society as being built up by individuals interacting with one another, a lot like ants interact with one another. Right. And so one of the targets of the book in arguing against this sort of individualism is to say that's a terrible model. For human society. That's not the way that human society works. Okay. Although, I mean, you, I think you have the frontispiece of uh, Leviathan uh, printed in the book, and, and that's kind of a paradigmatic yeah. example of exactly, <laughs> well, exactly this. Yeah. Well, that's right. And that's sort of supposed to be the foil. It's basically saying, I mean, that, that, that's, that comes right in the, at the end of the book. And what I'm really trying to say with that is that, you know, for, for 500 years since Hobbes, We've tried to sort of think about society as a leviathan that's built out of individuals and interactions between individuals. And it's, it's not easy to rid ourselves of this picture. It's a very compelling picture. And, you know, as we talk a little bit later about things like uh, collective actions and collective intentions, when, we, when you want to ascribe an intention to a group. So, like, let's say you want to say that, you know, the crowd intends to, you know, burn down this building. Mm-hmm. Right, so you might want to ascribe an attitude or an intention not to the individuals but to the group as a whole. Yeah, it's very common for people to just make the tacit assumption that the only building blocks you have are the individuals in the group. That whenever you have a group attitude, your analysis has to be in terms of the minds and actions of individual group members. And I'm arguing that that's a mistake, too. That's too anthropocentric as well. And that means that a lot of this work in collective intentionality is kind of working with one hand tied behind its back because it's only focusing on the contributions of group members and not thinking about all the other things that figure into group intentions as well. And then the, uh, the standard model? Okay, so the standard model uses a really different kind of paradigm of what a social entity is. Um, and these days, the standard model is best represented by the work of John Searle. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's, I mean, the fact is, you know, John Searle's work is part of a very long tradition, um, going back at least to Locke uh, and to, as you, me- you mentioned, conventionalism. Uh, Hume talks a lot about conventions. 
Um, so there's, there's a, long, a long tradition, and Searles is just one representative of this very long tradition, uh, but it's, pre- it's pretty well known. One of the examples that Searle uses is uh, a boundary around a village. So uh, he, he uh, gives this kind of toy example of, uh, you know, you have a village that has built a wall to keep invaders out, and uh, so the wall is really high, and it physically functions to keep invaders out. Uh, and then over the course of a number of years, the wall starts to fall apart. And uh, as it starts to fall apart, the function, the physical function of the wall stops working. So mm-hmm. it no longer works to physically keep the invaders out. But what Searle says is that sometimes you'll find that nonetheless, people respect those boundaries as if it were a wall. Mm-hmm. So what they've essentially done, according to Searle, is that they've assigned a line of stones the status of functioning like a wall. Okay, so the idea is, in his view, is like a, is a boundary is essentially a physical item that we have projected a status on. Mm-hmm. And so this kind of projectivist or conventionalist or what he, he there a lot of people are are interested in how, how we kind of collectively accept rules. Mm-hmm. So another way of thinking about it is that we collectively accept the rule that this serves as a as a boundary. Mm-hmm. OK, so that's but I, I just want to point out that just to start with that, that's a very different kind of picture for the role of people in building the social world. I mean, remember, in the case of the crowd, the people are actually the parts of the crowd. You look at the crowd and you separate it into its parts and you see people one after another. But if you take a boundary and you break it up into its parts, you see stones arranged in a line. Mm -hmm. There are no people that are the parts of the boundary, right? right? So in that picture, a social object is very different. It's built by people in virtue of being kind of a fiction that's projected by our minds onto the physical world. Okay. So those are two, two very different pictures. I, I just wanted to point out, both are individualistic in a sense, though. Yeah. Searle's, Searle's picture is, ext- I mean, the first one, it's obvious why it's individualistic. Right, the second was the question. Yeah, so Searle's picture is also super individualistic in the facts that make that boundary a social object. So what is it, according to Stroll, that makes that boundary a social object? It's my attitude and your attitude and another person's attitude. It's the, the things that set up the boundary as, that set up that line of stones as a boundary are all individual attitudes. Okay, so the role of individuals is very different in Searle's picture than it is in that uh, consensus picture. But in Searle's picture, he thinks that if you want to have a social object, the thing that makes it a social object is that all of the individuals in the community have a particular attitude of acceptance toward a rule. And that's the thing that, that creates a social object. It's, it's even more individualistic in a sense because it's all mentalistic in Searle's picture. Right. But um, so you this said- is something I also want to deny. Uh-huh. I think that, that the way that we set things up is going to be much less individualistic than people in this tradition think. Okay, so, uh, well, I mean, there's a number of ways to go, but maybe we could, maybe you could say why uh, these, why these are in opposition to each other. Um, so why the two different different um, kind of standard views are yeah. in opposition to one another? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say that they are strictly contradictory to one another, but they're very different in spirit from one another. 
You know, in one of them, you're saying that the building blocks of social objects are physical things, right, that are not people, like a boundary or a piece of paper, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, so, like, if you th- another, another example that's widely discussed in, in the social ontology literature is money. Right. right. And, you know, so, you know, you have these pieces of paper in your pocket, and, you know, what is it that makes these things money? Um, so another very widely held, I think a wrong theory, but a very widely held theory is that we all collectively accept that these things have certain kinds of functions. And so that's the thing that makes these money. Okay, so, uh, but the, the, the actual social objects are not our attitudes or our collective acceptances. The social objects are the pieces of paper, mm-hmm. right? That's very different from a crowd. And so if, you're, if you try to, um, so, I mean, to put it in slightly more technical terms, what you might want to ask is, what does a particular social property supervene on? So what is it, right, that is kind of exhaustively determines that this is a particular social object? And it turns out that the two pictures give very different theories about what the social world supervenes on. Okay, one of the, 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 the consensus picture says that social objects supervene on individual people's properties, mm-hmm. right? So a crowd is going to supervene on individualistic properties of people, right? right? But a piece of money is going to supervene, at least in part, on facts about pieces of paper and printing presses and patterns of ink, And so the supervenience base in these two pictures is very different from one another. In the the consensus picture, the supervenience base is entirely individualistic. But that's not what the standard model, what Searle's sort of model holds. Mm -hmm. Searle's sort of model doesn't take the supervenience base to be individualistic. It takes a kind of fictionalist approach where the supervenience base is the, uh, the physical objects, and then you project something onto those physical objects. So could it, I mean, could it be just that these two different theories take different types of social objects as their paradigmatic case, and they mold a theory for that, and then mistakenly, in some sense, overgeneralize to everything? Well, that's what I think. That's, okay. I think that's exactly right. Yeah. But I, but I think that when we actually look at these, that they're both capturing two different aspects of the building of the social world. And that's really what the, what the first part of the book is about. So the first part of the book is trying to just clarify these two different approaches and to say, look, here, kind of as precisely as we can, let's try to specify what these two approaches are giving a little bit of history and kind of just clarifying some terminology about these two different kinds of approaches to the social world. And then it's saying that they're actually, that that we shouldn't really look at them as competing models of the social. What we should look at them as is theories of two different aspects of the building of the social. One of them is a theory of how the social, how social kinds and categories get set up. Mm-hmm. That's the Searle-like one. Right. And then the other is a theory of, well, what the building blocks or the supervenience or the, what, I'm, what I'm going to call the grounds of social facts is. So the, um, the kind of uh, um, the, uh, sorry, the, the more, more conventional, the, the uh, consensus view, sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, consensus view is the one that, um, that kind of gives you uh, the grounding part of it, 
Mm-hmm. And it's a theory of, of the grounding of social facts. Now, it's not a good theory. It's not a full theory of the grounding of social facts because it does completely ignore facts like, you know, facts about money and about boundaries and so on. So we need to expand that to include a broader array of social facts. But we need a theory of the grounding of social facts. But we also then need a theory of how social categories get set up. And that is what I'm going to call the theory of anchoring. So there are these really two aspects to every kind of social fact. There's how they're grounded and then how those grounds get set up or anchored. Okay, so, uh, I mean, what I kept thinking, uh, I mean, maybe we should go into your, you've just mentioned grounding and anchoring, and these are, you know, hugely important concepts, because actually your model is called the anchoring and grounding, or grounding and anchoring model. So, uh, I want to get into that, but uh, one of the things that occurred to me as I was reading and thinking about your, your model uh, was was trying to think about it without without technical terms, and I I kept coming back to this idea of well, there are roles and there are there are constraints, uh, or to put it in functionalist terms, um, there are roles and there are realizers, and uh-huh. the roles are in effect certain sets of constraints. And the realizers are the things, you know, the objects that that fill the roles. Um, And so what you want, I mean, on this totally non-technical view, is a model in which the whole model includes both of those things, both the constraints and however those are established, plus the sorts of things that can satisfy the constraints. And when you do that, then you get a picture that um, that would include both the mob-like things and the handicapped parking spaces type things or the money type things. And they would all be social entities, but they just satisfy those two different conditions or related conditions in somewhat different ways. Is that is that a non-technical, in-the-ballpark understanding of what what you're trying to do? Well, so so I I definitely am trying to kind of construct a model where all of these things, all of the social entities are going to have, uh, kind of of be included. So you're going to have various kinds of, uh, of reasons why, you know, being a crowd is built the way it is, and there are reasons why being a chair is built the way it is, and reasons why being a corporation is built the way it is, and reasons why being uh, a dollar bill is built the way it is. Okay, mm-hmm. and um, so I and I, I think that that all of that can be captured in us in a single model. Then there are going to be alternate. Also, there are going to be reasons why the building works the way it does for each one of those cases. There are going to be metaphysical explanations, in a sense, for why you know the why why it takes what it does for a chair to be a chair mm-hmm. right um, but you know so I, but I want to be really careful when it comes to functions and, and realizers and roles because all of this stuff fits into the grounds if you're if so so I, I want to be when you're thinking about what grounds social facts they can be you can have social facts of all sorts of different kinds you can have social facts that are 
kind of, you know, real, that are, that are, that have very particular material conditions. And you can also have role kinds that are, uh, social facts. So, you know, if you think about something like being a parent, right, mm-hmm. that's something that is a role kind. And you can come up with what the grounds are for being a parent, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there are also particular parents. And, uh, you know, so there might be some question about why my father is my father and my mother is my mother, that, you know, a particular realizer of that role. But both of those are social kinds, being a parent and being my father mm-hmm. are both social kinds, and they're going to have very particular grounds. One of them is going to have functional grounds, and one of them is going to have more particular grounds. But those are both, you're both, in both of those cases, you're asking questions about, well, what are the grounds for a given social kind? What are the grounds for being my father? What are the grounds for being a parent? Okay. okay. But then there's another set of questions. The anchors are really kind of outside of all of this. The anchors are saying, what is it that puts in place the kind parent? Or what is it that puts in place the kind, my father? Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, those, so, so those aren't constraints on the grounds. Those are going to be the metaphysical reasons why the social categories are set up the way that they are. Now, it may be that part of those social reasons have to do with you know, the social functions that parents place, play in, in our society. Mm-hmm. So you might have social functions that parents play in our society and a whole network of social practices, right? And all of those networks of social practices might then carve out different categories, different social categories. But the categories that they carve out could be strictly functional categories or they could be strictly material categories, I think so. Um, so, well, let's let's just jump right into your discussion of anchoring and 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 grounding, which we've kind of been tiptoeing into anyway. Yep. Uh, so, tell us about you know what is anchoring doing? What is grounding doing? How are anchoring relations and anchors related to grounding relations and grounds? Okay. So uh, one, one kind of example you might think of to understand the difference between anchoring and grounding um, is uh, to think about this example that you mentioned of a kosher or a non-kosher animal, say. So think about a pig, for instance. Right? So a pig is a non-kosher animal. One of the things that is done uh, in, uh, in the rules of, you know, of the Jewish religion is that it sets out conditions for what animals are kosher and what animals are non-kosher. And pigs are one of the things that's explicitly set out. So all it takes in order for something to be a non-kosher animal is for it to be a pig. Like, if you have a pig, it's non-kosher. And it doesn't matter. You can travel to any possible context. You can travel to other possible worlds, right? And what's happened in Judaism is they set up these conditions for being non-kosher. Mm-hmm. So you go into a remote planet where there's no Jews. All there are is a population of pigs. And the way that the, that the kind kosher is set up, those pigs don't count as kosher. Okay. Now, you might so, – so the grounds for being non-kosher are simply being a pig and whatever the other conditions are. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, they're also – then you also might ask, well – what is it that puts in place those conditions? And there you might have different theories. 
So if you're religious, you might think that God's decrees are the things that set those rules in place. They're the things that kind of, I mean, if it were a word, the word kosher, you might think they're the things that define the word kosher, mm-hmm. right? But we're not thinking about words here. We're thinking about social categories, right? So you might think about what is the thing that puts in place the real definition of the social category non-kosher. And the thing that puts in place the real definition, according to the religious person, is God's decree. If you're not religious, you might think, oh, well, it's a matter of certain kinds of social practices. So you might think that it is practices of the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. Or else you might think that it is, uh, that it is uh, a product of conventions. So maybe there is a Lewis-style convention or a Hume-style convention that then puts that those conditions in place. So what I've done is I've listed just now two or three different theories of how we anchor the category being kosher. Notice that those anchors are the things that essentially generate the real definition of being kosher. They're not part of the definition itself. Okay. Um, Does that make sense? So yeah, you, let, me, let me just, a, a quick okay, question, uh, and then we can go on. If mm-hmm. If you believe that these are generated divinely by by yep. God. Uh, would they still be social? Well, that's a really interesting question. I, I think that um, that the the there's kind of historically been uh, a tendency to try to make a sharp distinction between the social and the natural, and I think that's just really misleading. I think that there's very much more of a continuum. The, the world is a very kind of complex and variegated place. And uh, when we actually start looking at all the different kinds of grounds for social things, you find that they're grounded by things like our human practices and by um, you know, our, our actions and thoughts and behaviors and also by things like having a cloven hoof or chewing the cud or you know, whatever the things are about a pig. Right? Those are, so grounds can be very heterogeneous. Mm-hmm. And also... Anchors can be very heterogeneous. And this is something, this is exactly where I depart from people like Searle and like the conventionalists, because they have very strict pictures of what the facts are in the world that set up social kinds. According to Searle, it's our human attitudes and in particular the acceptance of a rule. And conventionalists are a little bit different. They're a little looser, mm-hmm. but they're not that loose. Okay. Right? But in fact, if you look at the kinds of things that anchor the categories in the social world, they can be very heterogeneous too. They involve physical regularities about the world. They involve environmental facts. And they also involve things like thoughts and things like practices. Now, then you want to say, well, what counts as social and what counts as non-social? Right, that was my question. I was thinking if you have anchors like, uh, you know, in the natural world or the divine world, uh, those are not going to presumably... So so in other words, the the lack of... the the heterogeneity rather than homogeneity of the anchors uh, seems to entail that you can have anchors of the social that are not themselves social. And that's one that's exactly reason right. why you don't want to include them among the well, grounds. Well, you may or may not. Right? Yeah, I don't right, know. right, exactly, exactly. So you may, I mean, one of the things that you might want to think about is like, what are the anchors of the kind crowd? Right? That's a very interesting question, because a crowd, we've already talked about the grounds of a crowd, 
the grounds of a crowd are facts about the individual people, right? right? So you have a crowd running down the street. There's a fact that there's this crowd running down the street, and that is going to be grounded by facts about the various people running down the street. But nobody has asked so far, but why is it that the category crowd is carved out that way? And that's actually a complicated question. What is it that makes some group a crowd and some group not a crowd? What makes people on the periphery members or non-members of the crowd? Now, there we need an account of what facts about aggregates you know, and about objects in the world make a crowd have the grounding conditions that it does. Now, those may be more like a natural kind than like a social kind. In fact, if you think about something like a rock, you know, a rock is kind of has weird boundary conditions too, right? I mean, do the particle, you know, if it's really small, it doesn't necessarily count as a rock. If it's very big, maybe it doesn't count, but it has to be kind of a mid-sized thing and right with certain kinds of compositions. Um, but of course, a rock is not going to be composed by people. It's composed by rock particles or whatever, whatever rocks are composed of, right? But a, and a crowd is probably going to be anchored in a very similar way to a rock. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So there's just not the sharp distinction between social kinds. There are lots of ways that you could have social salt in the stew, in a sense. You could have some social stuff in the grounds, some social stuff in the anchors. And so, you know, or maybe it's all social um, for some kinds. And so you're going to have a kind of spectrum or a variety of spectrum. spectrum. Okay. So when you call anchors uh, reasons, um you don't want to say, I'm talking about reasons in some sort of, I don't know how, the, the way, so I'm thinking now of the space of reasons, and where reasons are very much mental, you know, things that we give and take and commit ourselves to and so forth, um, and you don't mean that. No, no, I mean, uh, so there's there's this kind of interesting new literature on metaphysical explanation, um, and it's all in connection with grounding. Um, so basically what I want to say is that there are two kinds of metaphysical explanation. One kind of metaphysical explanation is grounding, and a different kind of metaphysical explanation is anchoring. Um, and the idea of a metaphysical explanation is basically, uh, well, that's the thing that, that um, the grounds kind of ex- give the, the metaphysical reasons. Again, it's not a human reason sense. It's a metaphysical uh, it's kind of like the metaphysical cause, but it's not causal. Right? They're the things that, that answer the question, why does this fact obtain? Why, for instance, does the crowd exist? Why is the crowd running down the street? Or another kind of grounding explanation you might give is, um, you know, if you have a glass of water that's you know, 70 degrees Fahrenheit, and you might want to ask, well, what is it that makes it 70 degrees Fahrenheit? Well, I mean, so there are these causal answers to the question, which are, well, it was heated up and, you know, the ambient temperature of the room changed the temperature of the water and so on. Mm -hmm. But there's also a metaphysical explanation, which is that the particles are moving at certain velocities, right? And the temperature of the water is nothing more than the particles moving in those velocities. The particles moving at those velocities are the full metaphysical explanation for the temperature of the water. So that doesn't involve human reasons. That involves metaphysical reasons. Okay. So those are the, the well, um, so continue. I mean, uh, I still want to get the entire grounding and anchoring model. 
Okay. So basically, when it comes to any fact at all, to understanding the building blocks of any fact, the idea really is that there are two parts of the explanation of that fact. So if what you're interested in, and and again, this is going to end up uh, applying to when we start building models of social facts as well, because we're interested in knowing, you know, what makes facts obtain and what makes them not obtain. So, you know, we might want to know, uh, what is it that, that makes a population impoverished and what makes a population wealthy? Things like that. You want to know, if you have a given fact like that, this population is impoverished. You want to know, well, what are the parts of that? What are the building blocks of that? If you want to build a model of that. Okay. And so the, mo- the, the grounding and anchoring model basically says that there are two different kinds of answers that we need to explore. One of them is we need to know what the grounds are of those facts. We need to know, you look around at any given world, and you need to know what facts need to obtain in order for that target fact to obtain. Mm -hmm. Okay? The anchors are a different kind of investigation of how social facts are built. The anchors are basically saying, how do we set up the social categories that we set up? And for any given social fact, there are these two parts of the model. The anchors are going to set up the grounding conditions, the, the, essentially the principles that capture the grounding conditions. And then the grounds are going, to, uh, uh, are going to tell you kind of when that fact obtains or when it doesn't obtain. Let me give you a maybe, – maybe it will be helpful if I give you a more concrete example. Sure. Okay. So one of the things that I talk about in one of the chapters of the book is the law. Um, so, like, you know, if you're trying to see if somebody is a criminal of a given kind – Okay, so let's say that you have, um, you know, some social fact that you're trying to assess, like, you know, is, um, you know, is Assad or Bashar al-Assad a war criminal? Okay, so you want, you know, this is a, this is a question. Is this person a war criminal? Mm-hmm. Okay, so that fact is then, um, what you're, what you're going to be interested in is the application of the law. Right, you're going to want to know. Well, these are the conditions that the law sets out for what it takes to be a war criminal, mm-hmm. right? And so we have these fairly formal characteristics for being a war criminal. Right. We say somebody's a war criminal if and only if they've performed whatever atrocities in the act of certain kinds of conflict, right? So those are the conditions for being a war criminal. What you're interested in in applying the law is to know what the grounds are for being a war criminal, and then seeing if the particular fact satisfies those grounding conditions. Okay. okay? Does that make sense? Yeah. Then there's this other inquiry in the law, and this is not an inquiry that's done in the courts. This is an inquiry that's done in the academy, right? But you might ask, what is it that puts laws in place? Okay, so the law is this kind of principle that expresses what the grounding conditions are. And so one question is, what's the content of that principle? That's asking about the grounds. And then there's the question of, well, why is this the principle? What facts go into figuring out that this is the principle for being a war criminal? Okay, and those are the anchoring facts. And those actually involve very complicated sorts of anchors when it comes to a law. Things like you know judicial interpretations and instructions to juries and what's written in law books and so on. All of those actually change the content of the law. 
Right? And so those are done in two very different kinds of investigation contexts. But in a sense, both of them are inquiries into social building. Okay. Um, yeah, I think that, that, that was very helpful. Um, so thinking again about the mob, mm-hmm. uh, if you're going to apply the, the grounding and anchoring model to the mob, mm-hmm. what, uh, how, how would you, what would be the anchoring conditions or uh, the frame principles, as you also put it, for, for mobhood? Okay, so um, let me just give a, um, to the listener, let, let me just define what I mean by a frame principle. Okay. So a frame, a frame principle is basically what I was just alluding to when I was talking about the, the law itself. Mm-hmm. So the frame principle for war criminals is basically the expression that says what it takes to be a war criminal. Okay, so a frame principle gives the grounds for being a war criminal. And what the question of anchors is doing is it's saying, well, what is it that makes this the frame principle, that puts this frame principle in place? Okay. okay. So, um, so laws, I mean, one of the insights, I think, of the model is that laws are frame principles. And when you do that, you can actually clear up a whole bunch of questions in the theory of the nature of the law. There's a lot of confusions in this field called analytic jurisprudence, which is basically trying to investigate how the law is put in place. Mm-hmm. And once you see that a law is a frame principle, then you can separate out a bunch of questions that often get mixed together. Okay. okay. Now, what you just asked was actually a very hard question. You asked, well, what is the anchor for the frame principle about X is a mob. Yeah. Okay. So, so this is exactly the kind of question we want to ask in social ontology. We don't know about mobs. There are really two different kinds of questions we want to ask. And they kind of, if we, when we want to investigate them, we have to kind of go back and forth between the two. One question is, well, what are the conditions for being a mob in the first place? Right? If you see, you know, seven people running down the street, does that count as a mob? Yeah. If, you see, uh, if you see a marathon, does that count as a mob? If you see a bunch of people violently going down the street, does that count as a mob? So you have these questions about the grounding conditions for being a mob. Mm-hmm. So that's one question we've opened up. Another question is then, what is it that puts these grounding conditions in place? Yeah. Okay. Now, so, so if you want to answer those questions, I think you kind of have to go back and forth. I think you have to say, well, maybe... What anchors the conditions for being a mob is physical characteristics of our bodies and of space and time, mm-hmm. right? Or else maybe there are functional reasons why we consider some things mob and some things not mobs, right? Or maybe there are even political reasons, like maybe if there's a certain kind of threat, it's considered a mob, right? Now, it may be that the threat is part of the – doesn't the threat doesn't – doesn't have to be part of the grounding conditions, okay? You, it might turn out that the definition of a mob is 100 people or more in close proximity. Mm-hmm. But the reason that we've set up that category might be that large groups are threatening. Okay. Do you see what mm-hmm. And so it could be the social practices of reacting to threatening assemblies that then metaphysically sets up the, con- the conditions for mobhood. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, and so, so what, what we've done here is, I mean, again, this is obviously just a hypothesis. I'm doing this off the top of my head, right? But if you want to investigate both the anchors and the grounds, you have to do both simultaneously. You have to, there's not one project of conceptual analysis. What we really have is two different projects or metaphysical analysis, right? One project is in social metaphysics is understanding the facts about the world that set up categories, and the other is understanding the conditions for membership in those categories or instantiation of those categories. Okay. So let me, let me turn to uh, issues in social ontology or social uh, foundations of social science that have to do with collective intention, collective action, or group action, group okay, intention. I mean, these, these are the sorts of issues that many people writing in this area have focused on, even if they f- haven't focused on the ontological. Uh, well, they have, but uh, so I'm thinking of Michael Bratman or, or uh, right. Margaret Gilbert. Right, Margaret Gilbert or Tuomola. Right. right, so there's a lot of people, and you know, it's spreading beyond that, as you mentioned, E.O. Wilson before with, with ant uh, colonies, ant societies, right? Uh, yep. ba- bacterial societies, and and so forth. Right. So, um, to get to the, those sorts of issues, um, how does your account? All right. So back to the extreme anthropocentric individualist view that is mm-hmm. motivated in part by this idea that if you somehow reify uh, a mob or any sort of uh, group, you end up with these spooky things like the will of the people. And, and, and that's just, for whatever reason, that's unacceptable. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, one thing that I think is really, I mean, there are a lot of things that I think are kind of a historical shame in, in this literature. Uh-huh. And one of the things that I think is, is, um, odd about the literature is that people have seen this dichotomy between individualism and holism as being kind of the only two options on the table, Uh that you're either an individualist, in which case you think that society is built out of individual people, or else you're kind of some sort of mysterian, you know, and you think that there are spirits wandering the planet. And there's just no reason to think that those are the only two options. I mean, if you think that the social world is built very heterogeneously, then which one are you? Well, you think the social world is built, yeah. but you don't think it's built by individual people, right? But um, so I guess what I was what I was building to was for you to give us your account of let's let's start with uh, group intentions. All right there's a there's a nice topic <laughs> that you yeah. address at length. Um, right. So what are you know group intentions on your view? you know, in contrast to the previous discussions of, of group intention. Yeah. So, um, I mean, one of the things I think that also is, um, is very interesting about this literature and social ontology is that people are really focusing a lot on group attitudes like intentions. Mm-hmm. Um, and as if, you know, and, and some people think that's the, that's all of social ontology. Um, and I think that, it's really helpful to see these things as just one topic in a much larger context of, you know, what social ontology is. So, I mean, and this is starting to happen, but historically for the last 25 years or so, you know, basically everybody working in social ontology has been working on group intention, um, which is kind of, kind of odd. Right. Um, now, um, 
So my my picture in a lot of or what I'm what I'm arguing in the book in a lot of ways is not to give a fully worked out theory of of group intention. What it's really trying to do is to be critical of the prevailing views and then to kind of give a program for investigating it. Um, and so the question really is, well, what's wrong with the prevailing views? What's wrong with a picture like Bratman's or Gilbert's, uh, where what they're trying to do is to analyze group intention in terms of the intentions and other attitudes of individual members of the group? Right. Um, and if you look at the group, the, the literature, if you look basically at every single article in the literature on group intention, every one of them is an analysis of how individual psychology somehow aggregates into group intention. Yeah. What it basically does is it makes an, either a tacit or an explicit assumption that the intentions of groups supervene on or are exhaustively determined by the attitudes and mental states of group members. Okay, and I just want to be really clear on this point. So maybe we can pause. Okay. I don't know if you want to, if, if that's clear. No, that's, that's fine. I mean, I, I did take what you're doing as, in a sense, widening the supervenience base. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so, um, I mean, so, so the problem is that if you, you, you just have to kind of be aware that the, that there's this assumption that's built into the literature, that everybody who's looking around at group, adi- at group attitudes is trying to do studies in cognitive science, where they're trying to understand how member attitudes are interlocking with other member attitudes in one way or another way. And this is kind of where the literature is. But the point of, the, of this part of the book is basically to illustrate that that's just not right, that there are lots of ways for other factors to figure in to the intentions and actions of groups apart from the mental states of the group members. Okay, so what I do in the book is basically to make a common assumption that everybody is making um, in, in this literature, which is basically to say that for a group to have an intention or to take an action is kind of to be understood functionally as part of a functional system of practical activity. So um, what Bratman, I think, has done really great work in is to kind of understand individual intentions and how all of the and how that figures into the system of individual activity. And then he applies that to groups. Okay, so when we're talking about a system of individual activity, we're talking about things like planning and reasoning and deliberating and believing and knowing and intending. All of these things are kind of an interlocking matrix of cogs that work together in our navigating the world. You know, if I want to go to the kitchen and and pour myself a cup of coffee, then all of these different steps are going to be interacting with one another. I have my desires and I have my beliefs and I have my plans and I have my intentions and all those things and my actions and all of those things kind of work together as a functional system in order for me to conduct this practical activity. So if that's the way it works for individuals, then what we can do is we can look at groups now and we can say, all right, so if a group is to have an intention or to take action, then the way we're going to understand that is that the group has a system of practical activity where you have all these cogs interacting with one another. Okay. And when a group has an intention, it means that that particular cog in that system 
is working in the appropriate way in relation to all the other things. So that's basically a functional understanding of group intention. And that's something that he's doing, but lots of other people do as well. And I'm just taking that on board to start with. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, so having done that, um, I then want to say, but now how does a group end up implementing or realizing this functional system? Yeah. And if we look at actual groups, it turns out that there's a whole variety of different strategies that we have, non-cognitive strategies, okay, for implementing these sorts of, um, these sorts of systems. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, if you think about something like um, the, one of the examples I talk about in the book, it's kind of a, a simplified example, but um, it's the example of a group of stockholders, like the Microsoft stockholders, who are taking action to acquire a company. Okay, so let's say that the Microsoft stockholders take a particular action. They acquire a company. And then the question is, well, what is it that those stockholders, that, what is it that the group action is actually built out of? Now, it turns out that when we think about groups of stockholders, we have this tool that we've implemented so that the, because the intentions of the stockholders, if you just aggregate them together, those don't amount to the group intention when it comes to a company. Mm-hmm. What matters when it comes to a company is how much stock you own, right? That's, that's something that we've built into the way that we've anchored corporations and stock ownership. Okay, so when a, when a corporation is going to take an action, you can't just look at what's going on in the minds of every individual stockholder and aggregate it up to the, um, to the uh, group attitude right. or the group action or the group intention, right? What you have to do is you have to aggregate it in a particular weighted way. Yeah. And then what we might ask is, but what is it that determines that Bill Gates has more weight than I do? Right? And the answer is Bill Gates owns more stock than I do. But that's not a fact about anybody's attitudes, certainly not Bill Gates's attitudes or my attitudes. That's a fact about physical things that have happened historically, certain kinds of purchases and transfers and computer systems and whatever else happens in the possession of, in the grounding of facts about stock as property, right? All of those are going to figure into how the individual actions or intentions are weighted to then aggregate into the group action. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. And so if you want to figure out what the group action is, then you have to look at an extrinsic fact. You're looking at and facts about the real world that have nothing to do with the individual attitudes. So this is a very simple case, but it's a case already where we have an example of a group action or a group intention that does not get fully determined by anything about the group members. Well, couldn't... Uh... Just to play devil's advocate on behalf of somebody who wants to be more anthropocentric, mm-hmm. say that, sure, at, if, you, if you stop your analysis at, at that point, uh, maybe you're right. But, of course, I'm going to keep pushing down and say, ultimately, uh, it, it is facts about people and they're manipulating their world and so forth. Uh, so they can say, okay, I mean, it's not just what's in our minds, but it's also what we manipulate with our hands uh, and, and bodies and so forth. Uh, but, you know, as, a, as an individualist, I might just say, well, that's, 
yeah, okay, you know, we got to say more about bodies and, and the way they interact in the world. But sort of the way a reductionist about the physical would say it all goes down to atoms and that's really all I need to be committed to is the motion of the atoms. Uh, Couldn't an individual say to you, sure, everything you say is true. There's, there's more going on than just the attitudes of those particular people at that particular time. But the facts that you allude to that require this, sort of larger supervenience base themselves depend on other individualist facts, at least at some bottom level. Yeah, I mean, I guess the, the question is, I mean, you know, this is something that requires really careful scrutiny. And I think that it's actually pretty easy to come up with examples where, you know, you just, there's just no plausible way of understanding individual of, of understanding, you, you have to expand the, the properties you count as individualistic so much mm-hmm. that it just makes individualism trivial. Yeah. You know, so, um, so I, I think that when we actually do the work of trying to understand what grounds certain kinds of properties, like ownership properties and this kind of thing, then it, it just becomes very clear that it doesn't depend on anything that we intuitively would consider individualistic. And so the individualist ends up holding a thesis like, you know, all the physical world depends on the, you know, the particles with positive charges, right? right. And I, I want to say, you know, it's, I mean, you know, so basically what I'm saying is there's, if, if you're going to be an individualist, there has to be something that's not individualistic, right? Otherwise, you're just saying that it supervenes on the physical world. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I want to say that, I mean, I'm, I'm, again, I'm not being I'm not trying to say that the social is somehow mysterious. I'm just saying that trying to break the social into individual parts, either in terms of the grounds or in terms of the anchors, is just a, a, a bad game to play. Because what you're doing is you're excluding all kinds of things, all the non-individualistic things that also figure into the grounds and into the anchors. I mean, so, so one example, one thing that you might, you might try to think about in terms of, well, can we construct examples of really non-individualistic properties that could nonetheless figure into our social properties, right? What you want to do is you want to identify some non-individualistic property. Like think about, for instance, let's suppose that there is a hurricane somewhere in the middle of the Pacific Ocean where nobody has any knowledge of it and nobody has any contact with it and nobody's ever seen it, right? And it, so it just occurs and then it stops and there's, you know, it has nothing to do with people. Right. That seems like a non-individualistic thing to me, right? Uh-huh. But you could easily write a contract, right? Mm-hmm. You and I could have a contract where you owe me a certain amount of money if there's a hurricane in the middle of the Pacific. And that's just a fact about whether you owe me that money. Now, maybe we'd have a hard time verifying it. Maybe we'd have to look into historical records. Maybe we'd have to use science or satellite images or something like that. But that's just an ordinary contract. I mean, we write contracts about physical stuff all the time, right? And that's a whole lot like the stock ownership in Microsoft, And so then you might want to say, well, if you're trying to say, no, 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 the social has to be built out of individualistic parts at the bottom, then I want to say, but I I just don't understand 
what's motivating that limitation. Mm-hmm. Because when we actually do the, do the metaphysics, it's very clear that the things are very heterogeneous. Yeah. Well, you know, we're, we're out of time, actually. Oh, no. Um, yeah, there's, there's so much to discuss, and, and we haven't uh, been able to. Uh, <laughs> so, oh well. Um, yeah. But uh, can you say something? So maybe something? next time. Yeah. Can you, so, well, I mean, along those lines, can you say something about uh, wh- where you, what you're working on now, or, or are you going to continue some of the inquiry you've begun in the book, or are you turning to something different, or going back to philosophy of language, or, or what? <laughs> hey, it's well, always not it is always possible. Um, no, I, uh, so, so one of the things uh, that I, I think is, you know, still needs a lot of work is to show how clearing up the ontology helps in the science, uh-huh. you know. And, uh, I mean, you can give all kinds of abstract reasons for why it is that individualistic building blocks aren't going to work, but it's not clear how to apply that to models, um, so one of the things that I'm trying to do is to think in particular about institutions and about how we model institutions. It turns out that that is a sector of – a lot of people are, are very interested nowadays in institutions. But that's something that's unbelievably and very surprisingly individualistic. You know, when people are thinking about institutions all the way from, like, you know, governments to the IRS to – road systems and all kinds of things, they're modeling those kinds of things in terms of game theory. And that's a, a hyper-individualistic approach to yeah, these. Yeah, really. You know, and so I think that that's just like a really low-hanging fruit, something that's really a good way of illustrating how we can do social science somewhat differently. So that's one thing. Another thing is um, that there's also a ton of theoretical work remaining to do uh, in this model. I've talked a lot more in this book about grounding theories than about anchoring and so part of it is just to kind of fill out how anchoring works and what kinds of things work as anchors and why they work and that, and that kind of stuff. So there's some stuff uh, on that in the works as well. Great. Uh, well, I mean, I look forward to, to reading some of that stuff as well. Thanks. Uh, this has been great. So, uh, yeah, thank you again for, for taking the time to talk with us about your new book. And um, I'm sure it will... Uh, resonate with a lot of people uh, in a lot of different areas. So thanks again. Thank you so much. Thanks, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. You've been listening to my interview with Brian Epstein, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Tufts University. We've been talking about his new book, The Ant Trap, Rebuilding the Foundations of the Social Sciences. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening.